0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the You Should Run podcast. I'm your host, Tony Heil, Council uh, Vice President in Bridgeport, Pennsylvania. And if you've listened to this podcast, you know I've talked to people from every state, from Maine to Hawaii, Alaska to Florida, all points in between, from School board to US Senate. I have not done this podcast in a few weeks because of personal life business, busyness, um, but all good things, nothing bad, uh, including the fact that in our local elections, we swept all of our races Uh, here in Pennsylvania. We won big for judge, uh, Supreme Court, everything, and uh, elected some great people in Bridgeport. Uh, But I'm glad to be back. It's been five years since I started this podcast, and a lot has changed in politics. Um, And there's a lot of cool things to talk about on the ground level. So I'm excited to talk to my new friend, Zachary Donini from Decision Desk. He writes for Decision Desk. You may have heard of them. They make decisions about um, elections sometimes. They say sometimes who they think has won. And there's also a lot of great writers like Zachary who write about the state of elections, uh, trends in elections, and what maybe some of us can learn because we all have our own preconceived notions about politics. And maybe a little bit of uh, research and thought can shape our opinions and help us be better at this whole political thing. Uh, so Zachary Doni, thank you for uh, talking today. I look forward to speaking.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me on.
0: So you're at Yale, right?
1: Yep, I'm a junior in college. Oh,
0: man, I feel so old. So you were? So your memory of nine eleven is nothing,
1: then, right? It's nothing. <laughs> I wasn't born.
0: That's great. No, that's that's good. Well, and I appreciate that because I feel as I was talking about to you online and thinking about things um, and especially the topics you've covered, there's a lot of people my age and older who have a view of politics that kind of uh, included Bill Clinton. And I don't mean the late 90s. I mean, the early 90s had the triangulation of politics, trying to take issues from both sides. And I feel like a lot of things have changed since then. Um, one of those things is that people like you who are younger are thinking about writing about politics on a, at a data level. Um, have you always been interested in politics? Was there an election or a thing that got you to to say like, hey, this is something I really want to devote my time and uh, intelligence towards?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I when I was very young, you know, when I was six years old, when uh, Obama ran against McCain in 2008, I stayed up the whole night and I, you know, watched the results come in. So I guess you could say I was, you know, very into it at a young age. But when I really started to get into it was was COVID, honestly, I think like a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. And I think my interest of politics has always been based the most in my love for uh, like geography and, and, and maps. And, uh, you know, what's just most interesting to me is learning about you know, I just started learning about all these communities in the United States and these like, you know, cities I knew of and just just learning about how, you know, immigration patterns in the 1900s or, you know, what jobs people used to work in this, you know, communities and, and how that, you know, shapes their political uh, leans today. So I think, you know, like some other people, I just got really into politics and playing around with these great tools online, like Dave's Redistrictor app, if you, you know, heard of it or seen it before, mm-hmm. it was... Uh, You know, incredible for me. I, you know, spent so much time looking at that New York Times precinct map they released after the uh, 2020 election between Biden and Trump. And then I, you know, really started to get into it more, you know, when I was in college.
0: And it's interesting you talk about the 2008 map, which would be um, very hard to replicate these days. And it seemed like, I, I remember at the time, there were a lot of Democrats saying, oh, this is the new trend. This is how things are going to be. Florida is going to be a blue state from now on. We can start, we could have almost won Missouri, North Carolina, Indiana. And obviously that didn't hold. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. So what brought you to Decision Desk then? What is that? And what do you do there?
1: Yeah. So, um, I, uh, Super interested in politics. I just worked on it on my own and I, I cold emailed the people at Decision Desk. You know, they're a wonderful team of a uh, bunch of different types of people, but you know, a lot of people are are, are like me and they really, uh, you know, are into politics and they like analyzing it in their spare time. So I i emailed them. I was like, hey, you know, I'm free this summer. I want to, you know, put hours in. And, you know, it's a team, it's an incredible work environment, and a team of a bunch of very very talented people who know a lot about elections, who are, who are passionate about it and nerdy about it. So I, I fit in well there.
0: Yeah, when I was first into politics, this was before you were born now, I, like in 2002, to, 2001 in college, etc. cetera. Um, I got the 2002 or 2004 Almanac of U.S. Politics, got a couple of those type of books. Um, but it feels like there's now like a money ball approach to politics. And I say that yeah. for the whole movie, not just in terms yeah. of the analytics, but also kind of like some older thinking of people saying oh well democrats can win if they you know go move to the right on this issue or if they say this or um there's language massaging and things like that um but for people like you who are analyzing it maybe the analytics mean more than kind of those old-timey people in moneyball right
1: I mean, there's there's so much there's so much data, whether it's the, you know, the census, then then the ACS American Community Survey that, you know, teaches us so much about all different areas of the U.S. There's so much election data mm-hmm. and there's so much, you know, exit polling, issue polling. Um, and then, the you know, we haven't said the big T word yet, but like Donald Trump changed everything. Right. Regarding just just any trend you talk about in politics. Um, uh, which we'll probably get into more later. You know, like Donald Trump is is you know maybe he sped up some trends, maybe he slowed down some trends, maybe he reverted some trends. But you know, the when we look at you know how the American political landscape has changed for the last seven years, you know, Trump has been at the center of politics, and I think um, you know it, it's interesting, right? Because twenty twelve, you have Mitt Romney who performed you know incredible with with educated voters in in suburbs and then you know four years later you had trump who's uh you know driven those voters to towards the democratic party but you know made a lot of gains with the you know minority voters that romney didn't do well with and you know politics can can change on a dime um but you know for for 2016 and 2020 it was trump and it looks like you know again right now in 2024 you know betting markets think it's likely to be trump again
0: yeah so it's going to be trump again so he's not really changing the game in the way he did i mean maybe like a continuation of what he did so you've been you have started looking at the past trends and the current trends do what do you see anything in kind of the the maps and what happened historically of when and how trump kind of changed the political landscape not just that he won the primary in, in a republican primary 2015 2016 yeah. but can you see anything in there where it's like oh this is kind of where it started
1: yeah so I think the big, the big two phrases people have been using recently are like educational polarization and, and racial depolarization have been, you know, the big two trends that really, you know, dominated 2020, right? Where, where white uh, voters who had a bachelor's degree trended towards the democratic party and, and voters of color trended, trended to trended towards Trump. So, um, those, those are newer. But I think to understand those, you have to understand, I guess, you know, what, what happened before Trump and some trends that he has uh, maybe maybe sped up the process, but that were always happening. And, and those two trends are just the um, decrease in, in the importance of, of, of two factors, which is someone uh, which is a white voters ethnicity and B a kind of regional effects like where a voter lives in the country so back in you know 2008 which is very recent when we're talking about you know the history of america mm-hmm. these 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 two factors you know the region where someone lives in and and, and a white voter's ethnicity is just so powerful to determine how they're going to vote right like and we're talking about you know places where obama did extremely well in the upper midwest right like rural uh, wisconsin minnesota iowa we don't think of these as very democratic areas in 2024 you know, especially the exceptionally rural ones. But you know, Obama did did super well there before before Trump. But you know, he did less well than other Democrats. And and these and these trends where where people are uh, voting less, like you know, their grandparents came from Norway, which you know just makes people more democratic, or their grandparents came from uh, Germany or the Netherlands, which would make them you know more Republican. And these these predictors have just been decreasing over time, basically, as, as, you know, frankly, these, these white voters have more kids and they, um, just become farther distance from their, you know, European relatives. Right. So, so we've seen Trump speed this up, right. Trump did super well in these rural, uh, areas, even in like these quote unquote ancestrally democratic areas, like, uh, you know, up upper Midwest. And then the other interesting thing is just like regionalism is becoming less and less important, right. These, you know, historically southern suburbs like around Charlotte, Atlanta gets a lot of press. Even like Cincinnati and Indianapolis are are voting less and less. Like you know, they're southern suburbs, or and people are voting less and less. Like you know, I'm a suburbanite in Texas, and more and more just like you know, I'm a suburbanite, right? So these these regional and and ethnic trends have been decreasing for for decades, and maybe maybe Trump sped it up. He probably did, but now you know people are voting more like you know, I'm a 59-year-old white male uh, with a bachelor's degree, and less, like, you know, my grandparents from uh, the Netherlands, so I prefer the GOP.
0: Do you think that it's so much that Trump is the anomaly, or maybe in some ways Obama was the anomaly, right? Because Um, He was the first black president. Uh, He came at a time of where the biggest economic collapse since the Great Depression. I remember I was working on the campaign as a volunteer with my union I was working with. And, you know, the the stock market was just tumbling every day. The people around me who were older volunteers are like my retirement's going away every day leading into that. And then so like a lot of the communities just changed a lot because of the economy in 2008 to 2010. Um, And so maybe people point to Trump and he started feeding into a lot of the anti-Obama conspiracies that happened in 2007, not just 2008. So do do we kind of gloss over that maybe Obama glossed over some of those trends?
1: Yeah, I think Obama... Uh, most of all was an anomaly just because he did so well, right? Mm-hmm. Like in 2008, Obama won by, I think the popular vote was eight or nine points, an you know, incredible margin. And in 2012, he, he won by a ton again. And uh, the, the, the one thing where, where Trump was the anomaly and Trump really, you know, started sorting people was just education polarization, right? Like if you just look at the trend over time of, of white voters and who they supported based on their college degrees, and then you adjust it for how well Obama did, Obama ran, you know, very similar to to Kerry and Gore. But um I think one yeah, one one area where Obama was the was the anomaly was yeah, just how well he did. Like, you know, elections have been very close since, you know, 1992, 1996, they've just been all been extremely close except, you know, 2008 and and, and 2012 he just had a very, you know, strong hold on the electoral map. and, and one reason why those elections felt like they were were such blowouts looking back is because obama had like a very uh you know quote-unquote electorally efficient coalition right you know the you how u.s politics works is you don't try to win a majority of the votes to become president you try to win a majority of the electoral votes so obama was was the anomaly because his like extreme strength in these states like pennsylvania ohio wisconsin michigan um you know just made him have such an electorally efficient in coalition and then we've seen uh, in 2016, you know, Trump obviously won the Electoral College while losing, uh, you know, the the majority of votes. So.
0: And even when you watch Trump in 2015, 2016, he seems surprised, like genuinely surprised, and his campaign even did, that they were doing so well. I was watching, I was scared in 20 early 2015 because I was watching the debates. I was like, I don't know anyone on this debate stage of like 57 Republicans running or something ridiculous, right? It's too many, um, that was going to compete with that energy he brought. And, you know, he seemed to talk about things in a way that they were all afraid to talk about in a dangerous way. (coughs) Um, but when, 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 uh, how did he break down those regional differences? Like you said, like people are no longer voting like, oh, I'm a Pennsylvanian, or I am from uh, this township, I'm voting because of Trump or Obama or Biden. Do you think it really started with him? Do you think it kind of, does it mesh with any yeah. other kind of instance?
1: So, so it didn't, well, what it really started with is just the, the breakdown in the way of local news and newspapers, and just the nationalization yeah. of, politics, right? So, so, you know, people are just going to vote more similarly when they're all watching Fox News or CNN mm-hmm. or on basically on Twitter and in a political bubble, right, interacting with people whom they have very similar views with, less so when they're watching, you know, more, more you know, local news and newspapers. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if we're going to talk about Trump, I think it's very important to understand that the Republican Party in America uh, is trending towards a very right-wing kind of populist direction. And away from the pro-business leanings that you know you expected from Bush and Romney uh, and, and McCain as well for the majority of the 21st century so far, and, and this makes a lot of sense, right? Because if you look at most other right-wing parties uh, like uh, Marine Le Pen in, in France, you know, or uh, even Bolsonaro in Brazil, they're 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 very socially conservative and, and very anti-immigration, especially in Europe. But they're not pro-business, right? There's a lot of voters out there who are overly concentrated in the Rust Belt states like, you know, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, that Trump did very well at, that have, you know, social conservative leadings. And a lot of people talk about, you know, it's hard to measure this, but quote unquote high levels of, of racism, right? Uh, and, but then also are, are, you know, they're, they're ex-union people and and maybe they voted for, uh, they voted for Democrats 40 years ago because they were, you know, had manufacturing jobs in a union, right? So the Trump like really appeals to these voters who are you know you know we talk about this in the past as being quote unquote more more liberal economically right more uh, more populist economically and, and less pro business but but still um, relatively conservative socially and these you know white voters with, without a bachelor's degree you know fall into that category more than more than anyone else.
0: So I'm a pro wrestling fan, and there's a couple different wrestling companies. Uh, one of them that I like, AEW, they don't get as many ratings as WWE. WWE is like the NFL of professional wrestling, and uh, AEW is the USFL. or the. You know, they're, but to me, the wrestling is a higher quality. Like There's more fun matches to me. It feels more real. It, the important thing, though, is that they appeal to a certain demographic of wrestling fans who want it to be a certain yeah. way. And if they adapt and change... Then they're going to lose some of their current fan base but they won't necessarily gain the other ones and what i mean by that is so if republicans are in rhetoric at least are not appealing to that kind of business mentality of years ago and democrats do democrats risk appealing to that because then it will turn off some of their traditional anti-business leftist base like the people who like they don't want yeah. them to appeal to walmart they don't want to hear that like these um uh, people should get some sort of corporate tax cut because there's a lot of democrats who are rather progressive who will talk about a corporate tax cut or things like that yeah do, exactly. do, do democrats kind of um run a risk there of appealing to people who are voting for them um and kind of being in that middle
1: yeah, so I think the first thing that's, you know, another big change would be would be campaign finance, mm-hmm. right? So in the past, Republicans dominated campaign finance, and, and this is just very post-Citizens United. Maybe in 2012, 2014 elections, it was most notable. You know, state legislatures, down-ballot, you know, they did very well because their candidates had more money to spend because they were the, you know, more pro-business party, and, uh, you know, it, it helps to have a lot of money in down-ballot races, and now, you know, Democrats are the party that has more money, right? Because their donor base is now just just wealthier and, and highly educated. And I think that's, you know, if you're, if you're a Democrat, it's a positive development for you because you're very happy. You have, you have so much money. And even if you blow $100 million in the South Carolina Senate race like Democrats have done a few times, there's been more than enough money to go around. So, uh, yeah, it, it's hard for Democrats uh, to... Uh, figure out how they can deal with being a the pro-corporate party and getting a lot of the positives from that which is uh, an extremely strong fundraising base and B, you know being the party of uh people who have these deeply held views on on economic issues and uh you know like the Bernie Sanders group who who really think that it's it's imperative to work on the uh income inequality in the U.S. so that that's the first thing I talk about is you know it's, it's hard but uh what, what very pragmatic Democrats will say is there's just a big big benefit to being the pro corporate party in the U S with the current campaign finance laws. Like, like being able to outraise Republicans three to one in the Wisconsin Supreme court race we saw earlier in April is, is, is such a blessing for Democrats because these down ballot races are, are so much more influenced by money than presidential races when people have their views. And then the second thing I want to talk about is, um, I think a lot of people, uh, especially now because trump is you know just very focused on election denialism right that's his that's his main thing he talks about at rallies uh, forget about how he ran in 2016 especially in the republican party and like let's go back to 2016 and there were two candidates running for president who spent a lot of time railing against nafta right and the two were bernie sanders and donald trump who you know are, aren't aren't similar in pretty much all of their views but if we're going to talk about you know how politics change And we're going to, you know, talk about Trump more as like riding the waves instead of like, you know, being the defining figure he is, which he does some of both. Right. Is that Trump is a natural response to two things, which are globalization and automization. Right. And the United States lost a ton of manufacturing jobs to these two things in the past, you know, 60 years. And, uh, you know, a lot of studies show that it's like majority uh, automization. Uh, But, you know, Trump focused more on the fact that a lot of these jobs did get sent overseas, which is true. We lost a lot of jobs overseas. We lost a lot of jobs to machines that were, you know, you didn't need a college education for, but they paid very well. And, you know, Trump had a very, very cohesive view of things. Right. Which is that uh, we're letting a lot of low skilled immigrants into the country from the south and they're taking your jobs. Mm -hmm. And we find bad trade agreements that sold out American workers and enriched, you know, American uh, uh, corporate uh, people because, you know, they were, they were beneficial and we can, we can produce goods overseas. And, uh, the first point I said is, is, is very much a, a right wing social point, right? Which is that we need to decrease immigration. The second thing I said could either be a right wing populist point just about the bad trade deals, um, from, from the view of populists, or it could be a left wing economic point because Bernie Sanders would make the same point. He wouldn't make the first one about immigration, but, yeah, I mean, this is this is Trump riding the waves, right? In a way that he he wasn't very special. I think we you know we've seen it in France. We saw it in, in Netherlands a couple of weeks ago when a you know very anti-immigrant but kind of pro-worker party you know did extremely well. So
0: yeah, and those issues aren't new to Trump. Obviously, they've been going on for many decades, especially most notably maybe from Pat Buchanan and the uh, when he ran against George H.W. Bush, he seemed like a kook to a lot of people, but he got a lot of attention and he. Got a lot of people to support him, and it was there was an undercurrent of that that I feel you know we're talking about corporate donors that I feel like um, a lot of Republicans in the 90s and early 2000s they were kind of afraid to kind of dance with that devil because they would be losing corporate backing. They might be. Uh, I remember some of the immigration ideas the to you know about legislation were about going after companies that employed um, on undocumented labor. And that's not really what it's talking about now, but so they were, you know, they don't want to, ups, they didn't want to upset some of those big donors, and I think that a lot of the conservative base or the nationalist base did not like the Republican Party for, you know, tiptoeing around those things.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and now, and now, you know, when you look at the Republican nominees in a lot of down ballot uh, races, they they mirror Trump in that, right? You have people mm-hmm. like you know, Blake Masters and, and I think J.D. Vance like, really took it to another level in the Ohio GOP Senate primary in 2022. But, you know, these guys are populists. I don't know. if You know, I, I watched a, a bit of the Republican debate two days ago, and uh, it feels like the prevailing wins in the Republican Party are, are anti-corporatism. Right. I mean, I think uh, Nikki Haley got attacked by by Ron DeSantis and, and, and Vivek were, you know, very popular with Republican voters more so than Haley right now about. Um, and I mean that just from favorability reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and, they, and they attacked her for basically being a, a, a pro-corporate candidate, which, you know, in, in 2012 and 2008, everyone was fighting to get those big, you know, corporate endorsements of dollars. So it's, it's very different.
0: Yeah, you can't imagine in 2000 people attack, Republicans in the primary attacking George W. Bush for being too corporate. Like he would have yes. won more votes as a result.
1: Yeah. And sorry. No, go ahead. So, yeah, I think the Republican coalition is changing a lot these days, right? Because uh, in, in 2016, which we've talked about a lot, we have these uh, white voters without a bachelor's degree swinging towards, um, towards the Republican Party. And I think we've talked through that for, for a bit. And, you know, it makes a lot of sense, right? Because of the prevailing winds and, and this quote-unquote right-wing populism, which is a little bit more liberal economic, or populist economically and then, you know, more socially conservative, but then in 2020, Republicans did phenomenal among non-white voters, and that that was like the big story of 2020 for a lot of people. And I think that was harder for a lot of Democrats to digest, right? Because Democrats have worked on you know appealing to these these voters for decades, and they were doing extremely well. Hillary had incredible numbers with non-white voters, as of course did Obama. But you know, and then that all changed in 2020. Yeah, so, but
0: couldn't that couldn't that somewhat be an anomaly because because 2020 was its own anomalous election with COVID, uh, George for the crime and everything else like yeah, and and the outreach it just it felt like something you can't measure in the same ways as past elections. So I guess every election's yeah. weird.
1: Yeah, so so what I would ra- how I'd rationalize this is that we talked earlier about how regionalism and uh, you know white voters' ethnic histories are becoming less and less important when predicting elections. Mm-hmm. But another thing that's happening, and this connects with the the breakdown kind of of, of local news and the increase of, you know, Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, etc., is that um, ideological sorting is happening. Yeah. Which, that in the past, you know, someone's race, and still to this day, someone's race can be just as important to predict how they'll vote as their view on abortion, right? But it's... It's hard for Democrats, right? When, so, okay, so just, you know, so, some stats, right, is that, you know, Hispanic voters are, you know, more pro-choice than Democratic voters. But after controlling for which, which party they identify with, they're much less pro-choice than Democratic voters. Mm-hmm. Right? So Hispanic Republicans and Hispanic Democrats are less, you know, for, especially Democrats are less pro, and Independents are less pro-choice, less than Republicans. But what that means is that for a while, Democrats were winning... You know, Hispanic voters who you know maybe like I want to you know I just feel that we need an abortion ban pretty early into pregnancies, but I don't think I'm going to vote for Republicans, and, and it's just because you know Trump or because they perceive Republicans to be racist. But that's not happening anymore, right now. Um, you know, we're seeing these uh, abortion referendums. Uh, Democrats are overperforming on them. Abortion is a great issue for Democrats, mm-hmm. but you know, one one thing it does is it's it's forcing this ideological sorting where these uh, you know voters who may be you know minorities so their, their race tends to vote with Democrats as, as a trend but their personal social views identify close to Republicans and they're you know supporting the Republican Party so um, where that hypothesis breaks down would be Asian voters right because Asian voters. Uh, Tend to be just as pro-choice as Democrats, even after controlling for. Sorry, just as pro-choice as white voters, even after controlling for their party registration. Right. So a lot of people, you know, post-gro uh, in the twenty twenty two midterms uh, said that, oh, you know, Asian voters are going to snap back to the Democratic Party. Twenty twenty was uh, a, uh, you know, as you said, an aberration, and and you know, we have a couple of congressional districts in California. Uh, one is uh, very Vietnamese in Westminster and Garden Grove in Orange County and Republican uh, did great there. We have another one in, in Yorba Linda and Chino Hills, which is more Korean and Chinese. The Republican did great there, too. Right. So it's it's, you know, hard to to figure out, you know, uh, you know, why why Asian voters uh, and, you know, it's also Democrats are slipping with them in Queens in New York City. Why Asian voters are are, are leaving the Democratic Party, because. Unlike with Hispanic and, and black voters, you can't just say, oh, these are people with conservative views who are just, you know, sorting ideologically, right? It's, you know, maybe Democrats have a broader issue here and it's going to be hard to figure out.
0: Well, isn't part of that, I mean, I did a college uh, paper in Hawaii uh, yeah. about um, college applications and, and U.S. News and World Report. Maybe part of that yeah. is just how we view these groups because Hispanic means a lot of things. If you're from yeah. Mexico, yeah. you're, you're – you're very different from someone from Venezuela. If you're Asian is like a ton of different cultures and backgrounds and not only because of the country you come from, but when and how you came to the country. Yeah, exactly. So like Vietnamese is not the same as, uh, yep. as Japanese and not the same as Chinese, especially with the rhetoric going on in the country. Like there's so much hate towards China from politic politicians, yeah, which exactly. is very unfair. When you are talking about actual human beings, and so yeah. that rhetoric Im- impacts people who have that background in a different way than it does other backgrounds.
1: Yeah. And and if you want a silver lining for Democrats with, uh, I think, Asian voters specifically, I honestly don't know whether it applies to black and Hispanic voters, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, second and third generation Asians are, are much, much more uh, more favorable to the Democratic Party than, than first generation.
0: Yeah, um, and I've people- seen one of the, the trends, I forget um, in which place it was, was that, Oh, in Texas, uh, when Ted Cruz won uh, the last time, it was a close. And people were like, oh, Beto was going to win the new people coming to Texas. And actually, it was the inverse, I believe. It was the people who had been, uh, who were longer term Texan residents who were anti Ted Cruz. I don't know. Do you have any explanation for kind of like what that kind of trend means? Like why that's the case? That maybe the people who uh, were lifelong Texans were maybe more likely to be voting for Beto over Ted Cruz and vice versa?
1: Yeah. So I think one thing is just that, um, the, uh, heavily minority and, and Texas, it's mainly Hispanic voters, not black voters, mm-hmm. uh, democratic bases in cities. Uh, those, uh, populations are much more likely to be born in Texas and stay in Texas. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, that, that's, that also blew my mind. And I, I, you know, this is like a year ago. I think I looked into it like a little bit more and I think, uh, there's there's some logic that once you kind of like stratify by race, it makes a little bit more sense. Where mm-hmm. It's just mainly the the voters who like Texas is a very diverse state. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but the voters who are moving to Texas tend to be more white than the population as a whole. So I, I don't know if that completely explains it. I can't say I'm an expert in this statistic. Um, and I'm sure maybe there's a part of it where it's just that um, conservative voters who live in, you know, California or wherever are, are are moving to Texas just because maybe maybe uh, you know I personally like uh, haven't ever you know considered uh, a place's political leaning when I'm deciding you know where to go to school or where to move a state's political leaning but I think especially and then Roe probably increases this for Democrats uh, you know I think a lot of people maybe do and you see the people moving to you know Florida or maybe just mm, Want to you know be governed by Ron DeSantis? Well,
0: I mean, I judge whatever football team I'm going to root for based on if that state voted for the Democrat or Republican. So, like, Michigan's playing Alabama, I'm going to root for Michigan. I don't really care about college football that much, but Michigan voted for Biden, Alabama voted for Trump. The people in Alabama may be very nice, but that's going to be my reason for rooting for Michigan. but you know, this does remind me. There's this, these uh, studies and polls you may have seen about how um, uh, women are trending very much to the left politically, and men are trending. Young men are maybe yeah. going towards Joe Rogan podcasts and things like that. They're they're not going the same way, um, and they're like, oh well, isn't this a problem? But you know, it's people talk about politics as if like, oh well, Zach really likes the the Bears, and Tony really likes the yeah. uh, the Steelers. But that's just teams. But if you're a woman or if you're a person affected by these rules, you got to consider that. Right. We just saw this case in Texas where the uh, a woman needs an abortion for her own health. And the attorney general, Ken Paxton, who is one of the most vile people in major elected politics in this country, I think. And he is trying to prevent her from getting an abortion for her own health, not because she doesn't just want a child, but it's her own health. Um, you know. It's not just a matter of just, well, I don't like the colors. Like, yeah, it's your own life at stake.
1: Yeah. And and I think specifically talking about about Roe, um, it's it's I for for a while was like, you know, I, I don't think it's accurate to call Roe a a disaster for the Republicans, even if they lose electorally, just because, you know, this has been a major goal right. of the party for 50 years. But the, I mean, uh, you know, a, a good friend recently made the point to me, Zachary, you know, like, abortions haven't decreased. Like, overturning, overturning Roe didn't have, you know, the positive effect Republicans wanted um, in, in decreasing abortions. And they've paid for it, you know, seriously from an electoral standpoint. I mean, you guys had the uh, Pennsylvania Supreme Court election about a month ago. And, and it's clear that these, these positions that voters perceive to impact their abortion rights more like, uh, state Supreme court justices and state legislatures have like really moved uh, positively towards Democrats in 2022. So it's, it's been, yeah, overturning Roe. that it just hasn't been good for, for pro-life Republicans because they've lost at the polls because of it. And, um, they haven't decreased the number of abortions, which is I'm sure what the goal of overturning Roe was.
0: It reminds me on a, on a mere side of the Affordable Care Act. The great stories. I really recommend people reading anything about Nancy Pelosi's role in it um, because uh, Dan- Speaker Pelosi and others were like, this is why we got elected was to pass some sort of um, health care reform. And to a lot of people on the left, it was not nearly enough. Like when it comes to – republicans and and banning abortion the goal was to end row that's obviously they want to go further than that but like they got their goal for a lot of people on the left they got a good bill but it's not universal health care but yeah. if you're going if you get into all politics you get into it for a reason so maybe it's for yeah. universal health care or pro or anti-abortion yeah. or just building a new street but you accomplish your goal is not just winning yeah. an election
1: yeah so the the democrats right now are just the the facts are they're significantly more policy-focused party than republicans Mm -hmm. right that's that's just the reality of the situation and i don't mean to say uh you know it's it's because democrats are better or anything but the democrats are a more policy-focused party and the benefit of that is that when democrats win you know trifectas at, at at a national level they just they pass more you know big bills than republicans like i think Biden just accomplished more of what the Democrat base wanted during his presidency than Trump did during his presidency. The the downside of being a very policy focused party is the, the fighting between the different wings of the party is pretty intense, right? Mm-hmm. Like if, if you watch those democratic debates in 2020, you know, it's the first 20 minutes are, you know, Judge and Warren really going at each other about, you know, the, the details of healthcare policy. And, you know, it's, uh, I think the the Republicans right now are like a little bit more cohesive the voter base, the primary voter base especially are are, are, are more cohesive party ideologically. And, and And every four years the Democrats say, you know, I mean the 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 more progressive Democrats and the more moderate Democrats watch you know Trump or whatever nominee they they really want to vote against. And every two years during midterm suit, but every four years, even more so during the presidency, you know Democrats put their differences aside and uh, and come together. And I, but I think, you know, the, the worry for Democrats is always like, is this going to happen, right? I think that the Israel-Hamas-Palestine conflict is, uh, you know, really proven to be almost a 50-50 split issue among Democrats about how to handle that. And it's actually an issue where the grassroots voters and polling are, you know, really out of step with the, uh, with the elite Democrats who are in power. And, and then I think we've just seen that, you know, ever since the Occupy Wall Street movement, we've seen that there's just, there's a true split as we talked about earlier between the more pro business Democrats and the Democrats who maybe income inequality could be their number one issue for, you know, it's, it's been that way for a long time. So, you know, that's, that's a downside of being a policy focused is You can't just, uh, you know, Republicans just have these, uh, these more, more, more ideas. They, uh, they focus on like, you know, we need to stop the woke left. Democrats are, you know, really fighting over which healthcare
0: plan is, you know, they want to implement. Right. And Republicans are saying things that you can't really disprove. There's like, they're attacking, you know, things that are make-believe a lot of the time because you can't make a cogent argument against it a lot of the times. It's just a gut feeling that say whatever stats you want to people who agree with them. It's kind of hard to. But you talk about uh, the nationalization of politics and the end of regionalization. You wrote about the Kentucky election this year. Yeah. Where Andy Beshear won... And, uh, like I I read what you wrote and part of it was that the polling never really showed that he was in danger of losing. Um, and you know, he is not necessarily, um, as we would call years ago, like he didn't seem like a conservative Democrat. He, uh, he was very vocal against, um, school vouchers, which is great to me that he's doing that. The the arguments from people like, uh, state representative Tallarico in Texas against school vouchers to me very important issue to be against that. Um, And, you know, he has been kind of very upfront about his views on things. It may not be as liberal as an Elizabeth Warren, but you know, he is not someone who is just like slightly to the left of, you know, Lindsey Graham. It's not, that's not who he is. So do you think that's a template for other Democrats in other areas? Like they're going to call you all these things anyway, just be your authentic self. And that's what they're going to reward you for.
1: So the the one thing about Bashir, and you know, I think a lot of Democrats love Bashir, and he has one. He did just have an incredible performance in November. I mean, if you would have asked me a year ago, I would have really not thought he would win by you know such a comfortable margin. Mm-hmm. But the thing about Bashir is Republicans do have super majorities in in the state legislature, right? So Bashir benefits from the same effect that these Republicans like uh, Larry Hogan and Charlie Baker and Phil Scott do in New England, right? Mm-hmm. Which is that you. You don't have to do anything, right? Because mm-hmm. any, anything that you do, the, the the state legislature can can override you. On, right. So because of that, there, there are no like high salience you know public fights uh, about policy in the state, and you kind of just get to be like a figurehead in, in a way, right and And Bashir takes that responsibility of being you know a figurehead and a leader and really runs with it, right? Like he, uh, people, you know, talk about how incredible his natural disaster response was to to the floods uh, and, and tornadoes. And, and you know, he just does a, a fantastic job just, you know, making people in the state be proud of their governor, even if they disagree on policies. Luckily for him, they don't have to get in fights about policy because he's not a very, you know, he, he can't pass, you know, policies that, you know, national Democrats would like. I think that's actually something that, uh, governor Shapiro in Pennsylvania does a phenomenal job mm. of it as well. Talk about the I-95 collapse, right? He's like on the scene, you know, making speeches about how he's focusing on reopening it. And, and I think what every politician can learn from Bashir is you have you have two jobs as as a governor, even as a president, which is one is to is policy and, and two is to be a figurehead and, and to make just people feel feel happy about the person who's leading them and, you know, make them feel more comfortable. And then I think Bashir really embraces that, that second position, and then, and then did a great job.
0: Yeah, and I think when you look at Bashir, you look at Governor Shapiro, who I know personally, and I love him uh, for a lot of reasons, don't agree with everything, but he really is that guy you see on TV. Like, if you bump into him and say, um, can you believe that the state budget has a 0.5% increase in... tobacco anti-tobacco advertising like oh well it's actually 0.48 like he'll just know it and it's just who he is but they have a brand of competent leadership and i talk about running local office um the podcast is called you should run you said that democrats are you know you know whether you agree with democrats or republicans and it's it's this isn't as partisan of an episode as others um Yeah, yeah if you um isn't that a way for Democrats to kind of f- fix their brand is just to be the brand of competence, running on a local level, running on a state legislative level. You don't have to shout about everything, just like show like, Hey, if you want everything done right, whether it's roads or rights, we're going to handle this like adults. That seems like a yeah, good exactly.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that, that people sometimes underestimate, you know, the the power of chaos, right? You see it around the world. I think, You know, when when, when Trump runs for politics, his his fundamental argument is, you know, things are broken and we need, like, radical changes to fix it, right? And uh, I I think there's some proof that, yeah, voters have gotten a little bit tired of that. Um, You know, Democrats aren't pulling, you know, that well regarding 2024 right now. But if you look at, you know, election results, it's clear that, yeah, this, like, you know, the Democratic brand the past uh, four to six years, especially I think Biden has... Has run with it like the Build Back Better, is, you know, is is, is we we get things done, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and you know, I think a lot of people would say that that they can they can name more things that Biden has passed than Trump by a wide margin. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think yeah, this this brand is you know it's going to be very important for the Democratic Party, and it's going to you probably you know dominate yeah the next six to eight years as well.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting to Build Back Better. Do, uh, Joe Biden will laugh and make a big deal about republicans who come to a press conference trying to take credit for getting stuff in their district that they voted against um but one last thing here you're looking at the future elections 2024 beyond the um the big differences i've seen in my podcast or heard on my podcast i guess um and you've written about are some of the primary incentives and it seems like we so we see that for democrats or the democratic base the educated base as well whether it's democrats or not being competent is a good incentive in a primary and a general election but being incompetent is almost like an incentive for the republican base i mean i don't mean incompetent as in dumb i just mean like not getting things done is not an incentive in the republican primary base right so it's
1: it's a more it's a higher more rhetoric less policy focused party right now Mm -hmm. i think i mean yeah i mean the the u.s primary system is is very unique right? i mean this is you know people talk about this all the time but it's this idea where we have general elections. Instead of using proportional representation, we split our country into districts, and most of them are not remotely competitive, right? Great. So if, if I'm the, uh, a Republican or a Democrat in, in Congress, and uh, in, and I'm deciding, am I more worried about losing a primary or losing a general election, I bet in about 75 to 80% of districts, people have a bigger chance to lose a primary mm-hmm. than a general election. You know, they're, they're just, you know, it's, it's hard to lose a Biden plus 16 district in a general election. It just doesn't really happen very often. You right. need a, a massive red wave and some, you know, insane scandal that would probably make you lose a primary anyways, right? So, you know, when these, uh, you know, when, when everyone is trying to decide who they're, they're appealing to, um, they're, they appeal to the primary electorate. And again and again, in the past seven years, Democrats moderate Democrats have came out on top in, in a lot of key primaries. And uh, more conservative Republicans came out on top in a lot of key primaries. So, I mean, these are the these are the incentives it creates. Obviously, it depends on the district somewhat. I think, especially with the Democratic Party, obviously, like you know, AOC, the Squad have have beaten incumbents running to the left of them in urban urban areas. But uh, it's it's harder to name examples of Republicans that that win primaries running running to the center, right? I mean. Electability is, is, a, is a key tenet of the Democratic Party, and Democrats really run on it. I think you saw uh, David Valadeo in California, who voted to impeach Trump, but wins his Biden plus 12 district, and is you know, a legitimate conservative, uh, almost loses primary to an underfunded challenger. Right? It's really hard to, to run in a Republican primary right now as, as the more moderate candidate. Because that's just not what the the voter base prefers.
0: So this kind of brings me back to something you brought up earlier. Maybe this is a good way to kind of wrap everything together. Republicans for a long time um, have recruited candidates who were business-minded people. Um, Whether that was a focus of their campaign or not. Um, They owned owned a small business. They were executives, etc. And if you were one of those people, now you, you see a lot of brands... They know that their base of the buying power of people is not conservative for a lot of things. For, yeah. From beer to luxury cars, it's like if you want to appeal to people with money, you cannot appeal to be hateful. You cannot seem to be like supporting these things that they are against because people yeah. are voting on their values. So it yeah. seems to me, and I've seen this when I talk to people in the podcast, is – Um, a recruitment issue where Democrats can recruit some of those business people to run, but also Republicans, some people who may be slightly more conservative business leaders, like the moderate type of people, they don't want to be associated with it because if they run and lose or have to appeal to a primary. Doesn't that have like a personal, like if you were going to go to a shop and you wanted to get like some professional business from a lawyer, you wouldn't want to find out that, well, they said like agreed with, the insurrection.
1: Yeah. So So there, there are some, some good Republican candidates and and by good, I mean, they're, they're just very skilled at winning general elections out there. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And, and I think Republicans, I think, I think McCarthy especially tried really hard to recruit some in the 2022 cycle. I think like Jen Kiggins who represents uh, Virginia beach now uh, is a, is a phenomenal candidate, you know, super skilled at winning general elections for Republicans. Juan Siskimani who represents uh, Tucson and uh, Sierra Vista is, you know, another, you know, extremely skilled candidate um, who had a great general election performance and will probably be, be representing a battleground district for a while. But, yeah, I mean, these candidates were able to win their House primaries with a lot of, like, institutional support and money from, you know, from McCarthy and, and his allies. But, I mean, winning a statewide Senate election is a, is a whole different beast, right? I think, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the... Uh,
0: you see like Blake Masters, who was kind of a dork and weird guy, like those kind of people.
1: And then and then I I also think there's a little bit like I think that like the two I mentioned, Kiggins and Siskamani are really good candidates, as you mentioned, you know, they they kind of have that those, you know, small business uh, uh local type of vibes. But I, I also think that, you know, when Republicans are running David McCormick for the, you know, Pennsylvania Senate, uh I you know, he's just not in touch with Republican voters. Right. I've talked about the trends of globalization and automation, you know, really shaping the Republican Party. And, you know, as much as David David McCormick is the perfect, you know, Republican Senate candidate in 2012. And maybe he would still do very well. in you know, Chester, Montgomery, Bucks County in, in, in 2024. But it's hard, right? Because for him, the uh and by very well I mean compared to, you know, people, people like Oz or if you nominated, you know, JD Vance in, in Pennsylvania. But um it's hard because the Republican the Republican primary electorate does you know, they, they don't align with the, the hedge fund business people anymore.
0: I I can imagine that David McCormick will do worse in Delaware County than Oz did and, and like in Chester County, because these suburbs yeah. I was involved in some of the elections here this year. You know, I, I care about my local area, Montgomery County. And, you know, I thought, man, this Carluccio's got a lot of bad. She's from the area. Maybe she's going to like, nope, she did worse than uh, than Trump did. She did worse yeah. than Austin. Like the, the trends here just keep skewing further and further away from Republicans because David McCormick's not going to be a candidate who is, and according to the Philadelphia suburbs, He's not going to be a candidate who is like from George Bush, who's like a business guy. He's going to be seen as Trump's guy, and he's going to be crushed, yeah. I think. He's yeah. not even going to be I seen mean, like a Pat Toomey.
1: Yeah, that's what Democrats, you know, n- n- try to do to Republican candidates in suburbs. And it it worked in, you know, 2018. It worked in 2022. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, polling isn't great for Democrats right now in 2024, But uh, I mean, you know, we'll certainly see what happens in the next couple
0: of years. Well, great. So the podcast is called you should run. You do a lot of data analysis. Um, and you know, so for some people looking at the trends, like, look, the candidates don't matter. All that matters is, um, the, the way that this district's moving to the left or this district's moving to the right, these people moving here and there. Can you, um, end here, um, your perspective of writing for it, for decision desk. Um, why should people really consider making a move to run for office to influence these elections?
1: Yeah, and and there there's two different reasons you should run for office. One is because you know you can win, right? Like candidates still matter. You know, Republicans can win Biden plus twelve districts. Democrats can win Trump plus ten districts. You know, if you know they're running, you know, the right way, you get a stroke of luck, etc. But but the second reason is because you know, you're, you're building passion and you're building a base for your party in the future. I mean, I, I knew knew a friend at Yale whose grandmother ran for a Trump plus 70 district, you know, state house district in Abilene, Texas. Uh, you know, she lost by so much. But, you know, that's it's going to be a key area in 2024. Maybe, you know, a couple thousand votes in Abilene, Texas won't make a difference in, in, in the state legislature race there. But, you know, Texas is a very competitive state and building up You know that type of that type of support in 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 democratic areas. Sorry, in Republican areas, still matters Mm because there could be you know some more competitive elections part of in the future. And you know, American political trends are very you know. Right now, we talk about oh, like education polarization, racial depolarization. This is the truth. This is what you know the next forty years is going to look like. I mean, Obama won Indiana. 15 years ago, now it's not even close. Maybe in 15 years, Nebraska is going to be a toss-up state because, you know, education polarization went insane. American politics is really hard to predict. And if even if you're not building up, you know, a base of support for, you know, a close election in four years in your area, you know, there may be a close election in 15 years. And then lastly, you know, it, it's, it's a more, uh, you know, less uh, logical argument. But, you know, people deserve a choice, right? It's good to have, you know, everyone, someone on the ballot in every election. You know, that's, that's kind of
0: cool. Yeah, I agree. Um, so, if people want to hear more from you, they want to learn about like what Decision Desk does. They want to kind of get your analysis uh, of things, and maybe pay attention to the next years of election, years worth of elections, and beyond. Where should they go to learn more?
1: Yeah. So, first of all, um, you know, we at Decision Desk do incredible work. Pretty mo- most, of, you know, what I work on, you know, comes out through Decision Desk. Maybe it has my name on it. You know, maybe it doesn't. But you know, we have a lot of analysts who we approach elections from a very nonpartisan way so our goal is to you know distribute data and analysis you know accurately as we can throughout the u.s and then if you want to dive even deeper i think there's some incredible people on on twitter who do an awesome job and then you know following people like and i'll just shout out some people who i really like but you know j, j. miles coleman uh every state has their own expert like garrett archer and Arizona, John Ralston and Nevada are, you know, incredible. And every state has people like that. So, you know, if you want to learn more about politics, you know, I also recommend, you know, playing around with Dave's redistricting app or something. You can learn so much about, you know, the political, you know, coalitions and communities in the United States, because, you know, fundamentally, that's what I've always found most interesting.
0: Well, I follow Decision Desk. Uh, I, I, I read often, uh, so I appreciate what you're doing. Uh, look forward to reading more about what you and your other colleagues are writing about in the next year. If you're listening, maybe you should consider running for office, too. And, Zachary, since it's December, um, I hope you have a great holiday. Whatever holidays you're celebrating, I yeah. hope you have a good time with your family. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me on. It's been an awesome conversation.
0: Great. Thank you. And, again, if you're listening to this, maybe you should consider running for office.